Get in the action on the Action Addicts Podcast. No greater faction than the action movie scene. Get in the action on the Action Addicts Podcast. Your satisfaction, action on the silver screen. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the show. My name is Scott Wiley, and you're listening to the Action Addicts Podcast. I'm going to try and make this intro really, really quick, because this is the third time I've recorded it, and this is a really, really long episode, so I don't want to get dragged out in the details. First of all, you're going to be listening to us talk about Jet Li's The One. We have Matthew Essery on today, and we will talk in-depth about the film. It's a really great episode. I absolutely adore this film. The new metal soundtrack rules. You cannot convince me otherwise. For those of you who are confused as to why this isn't a ninja movie, that was a mistake in the end of the recording of the previous episode, which was recorded in bulk when I was away. This episode should always have been the last episode in that original bulk recording, but for some reason I got confused when I was doing my bulk and I basically put the wrong outro in the wrong episode. But this isn't actually going to be the last episode before the Ninja movies. There's going to be one more which had to be snuck in for reasons that will be explained in that one. And it's about a great film. We are hilariously doing Jet Li today. And the next episode is going to be on a Jackie Chan film, New Police Story. So get excited for that one. I don't normally tell you what's going on in the intro, but on this case, I'm making an exception. So with that said... I'm going to throw you over to myself and Matthew, who can take it away, and we will guide you through the journey that is this classic 2001 film. I'll see you in the outro. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we're back. It's been a while, but we have a returning guest of great prestige with us today. It's Matthew Essery, which you'll already know because you'll have seen the title of the episode and you'll have heard me say it again in the intro, but I'm going to hold it over to him to say anything I've forgotten about himself that he would like to tell you to know. Well, if anything, I'm a big fan of, of shameless self-promotion. Again, as you said, my name is Matthew Essery. I am a freelance film critic, film appreciator, interviewer, uh, a former podcaster. I uh, have written for outlets like Polygon, Any Cool News, Screen Anarchy, the Action Elite, Film Combat Syndicate. Uh, I've reviewed many movies. I've talked to many celebrities. Uh, you can find my work all over the internet. I am basically a guy who just loves movies and sometimes gets paid to write about movies. And, you know, that's pretty cool, right? But, you know, I'm just like you, Scott. I'm just a guy who likes action and action movies. Oh, yeah. I, li- I like that. I'm, I'm just a guy like you. You know, it's just like, ah, yes, I'm, I'm too of a fellow kid. How do you do? <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm humble. I'm humble. I'm, I'm humble. And even though I talk about myself in the third person, like I'm not, like I'm not really me. Yes. That's the only way you can talk about yourself in the third person and make it work. But, uh, I, speaking of there being more than one person to talk about, we are going to be talking about 2001's The One, which stars Jet Li and Jet Li. Because he plays two different roles. Well, technically he plays more than two different roles, but for the most of the film he's playing two specific roles. And uh, I don't know if there should be some like background to this film, so I might go second. But um, I'm really curious, Like, when did you first watch this? I'm going to guess it was the same as me, which was in 2001. 
and it, and did it just fulfill your deepest desires as a martial arts fan or or did it like did it weird you out with its sci-fi-ness uh, i saw it opening day i mean in its theatrical run because i was well uh steeped in hong kong fandom at that point so gently of course was a very big big deal to me then as he is still to me to this day so i was there opening day ready to go with my friends I remember really, really wanting this to be good because at that point, his, his American films had not been that great. Uh, Romeo Must Die was a little bit of a disappointment at the time. And I just wanted this to be good. And, and I remember the, the advertisements for it being kind of humorous because it, it was basically sold on the idea of, of, who, of who's the only person who can beat Jet Li. Another Jet Li. You know, that's how badass Jet Li is. The only person who can stand toe-to-toe with him is himself. And I, I, I like the dopey sci-fi and it's qual- I like the dopey sci-fi quality of it because it, it's a little bit Highlander. It's a little bit, it's a little bit silly. I mean, they even have a, a riff of there can be only one in the film. And I've always yeah. been a big fan of, of, of Highlander. I, I like that kind of trashy European franchise that is Highlander. So I, between being a, between being a Hong Kong fan, a Jet Li fan and a fan of, of Highlander, it was hard for me not to like this movie. It would have had to work really hard for me not to enjoy it. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, I, I agree. My only difference is, is I didn't see this in the cinema or I, I don't think I saw this in the cinema. No, I'm, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have seen this in the cinema. Um, I'm actually trying to remember. Oh, you know what? I'm going to have to look this up. Hang on two seconds. Ah, so I'm not entirely convinced that the one had a cinema released in the UK. Well, that's that's horrible, man. I can't imagine not getting to experience this wonderful piece of cinematic silliness, not being able to see it on the big screen. Because I mean, really, it's such a it's such a fun, loud kind of popcorn movie. To me, it feels like you'd be cheated out of the experience not getting to see it as big and as loud as possible. Because the movies are so silly and so kind of kind of knowingly self aware that they you really should see them in like larger than life quality. And to me, the idea of gadgetly, badgetly squaring off. That that requires a big screen, you know, a bucket of popcorn, and just you, you need that whole cinematic experience for it, in my opinion. Okay, so the plot thickens. I am uh, I am going to have to rescind my previous statement that I did not apparently watch this film in two thousand and one because it did not release in the United Kingdom until April twelfth, two thousand and four. What? That's why. Ladies and gentlemen, when I say that the difference of releases between the US and the UK is sometimes ridiculous, I have a prime example. <laughs> that's that's wild, man. Like three years difference. I wonder what the holdup was. Yeah, I don't know, man. It doesn't actually say. It's really annoying. It just says that, uh, you know, originally released in the US and Canada, and then the film was released in the United Kingdom April 12th. So, I, yeah... That it was probably a distributor reason that they just a lot of the, these types of films whenever I look into it it usually comes down to somebody somewhere didn't have much faith in it basically you know um, I've, I've said this before but the cinema scene is very different in the UK to the US and you know a lot of films that get the, the limited theatrical run there isn't there isn't such a thing here not 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 unless you're an independent cinema, of which there are, like, so few of them, and they are very far between. Unless you're in a big chain, you're probably not going to be seen. And even then, 
you know, even even the big chains, it's like, oh, come and watch. Uh, I think the most recent example was Shin Ultraman. You know, oh, that's going to have a UK cinema screening in London. Oh, cool. Where else? No, no, no. Just one night in London. That's it. That's the whole of the UK sorted. Oh, great. Cool. Well, I ain't seeing that then. But uh, I don't know why some films have this weird discrepancy between releases. It's 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 maddening. The last one I could really remember was John Wick. That took forever to come to the UK. I remember because I imported the US Blu-ray, still waiting for the UK cinema release. Yeah, that sounds terrible to be honest with you, man. Like, if that's what's one good thing about America is that we we get we get like the popcorn action movies right away. You know, they're very easy to see. There's a built-in audience for them here, and. And Jet Li was a pretty popular American attraction in in those films. I mean, quality aside, Romeo Must Die did very well here. So I mean, he he was considered a draw at that time. Uh, that's why they oh, had 100%. The, again. That's why the entire marketing was built on Jet Li versus Jet Li. It's kind of ironic that the whole marketing was built around Jet Li, considering that the film was not originally uh, written with Jet Li in mind. No, it was not. It was originally written for a guy named uh, Dwayne. Yeah, he was uh he was this uh, little wrestler in some American TV show called the WWF. I don't know if you remember it and he was on it for a couple years and uh apparently he turned this down and did something called the Scorpion King and I I don't know what happened to him after that. Yeah, I mean yeah, I think he maybe made he maybe made a movie or two something about uh, I don't know, he Oh yeah, he was in that he was in that really great car movie. What was it called? Faster. Yeah, Faster, great movie. Um, oh, that that is a great movie. I'm it is sorry, a great I'm movie, dropping yeah. the sarcasm now. <laughs> yeah. No, Faster is better. Faster should have been the franchise that Fast and Furious was. But uh, no, I'm, I'm I'm being a hyperbolic. But I mean, I do really enjoy Faster. Faster is a great movie. It's one of the few movies that Rock made when he was still trying to be an actor that I really appreciate. Faster always struck me as his response to people saying that The Rock just keeps playing The Rock in films, and Faster was his sort of last reminder that when he wants to he can actually play other characters and he can be pretty intense but unfortunately he just made so much money just playing himself again and again that, that there's there's no trace of that version of him in any film recently yeah he, he was he was unwilling to stretch himself really and uh and that's the same and but to bring it back on topic the same cannot be said for jet lee because jet lee really shows his multifacetedness in this film he gets to be you know, kind of humble and the sweet Jet Li that fans know and love. But he also used to be the Jet Li we don't get to see that often, which is the smug, evil Jet Li. And I got to say, smug, evil Jet Li is a lot of fun. So I, I'm going to kind of kickstart off, uh, well, A, with, with my experience, and B, I'm going to I'm gonna attack what you just said, because I, I was going to say something similar. Um, so I'm, I'm now 99% confident I didn't see this in the cinema. Maybe it released in the cinema. I don't remember. I might have seen it, but I have much more vivid memories of watching this film uh, with my granddad uh, in his front room on the, well, what would have been a big screen TV back then. God knows what the size actually was. And uh, yeah, I, I fell in love with this film. It had so much stuff going for it that appealed to me. I love sci-fi. I love martial arts. I already knew who Jet Li was. I'd seen a bunch of his films from Hong Kong. We had them on VHS. In fact, I've still got them on VHS those specific ones, like Fist of Legend, which I'm amazed because I honestly thought I wore that VHS tape out, but it still plays. And I actually, in retrospect, think that The One is one of Jet Li's best films, not necessarily in terms of the martial arts, but for me, Jet Li has played, as you've said, not as many, 
but he has played villainous or antagonistic roles throughout his career. And I absolutely love the one because I've always said that Jet Li has two modes. You either get the soft eyes, sweetheart that everybody wants to get behind, or you get the menacing, efficient, kicks everybody's ass Jet Li. And the two films that really molded, sorry, the, the film that molded those two personalities together, I'd argue, is Unleashed. And this film is almost as if those two personalities were given separate entities and told to fight. That's exactly what happens. But I absolutely love that even this early on, he was able to portray these two very clear different people so flawlessly. And uh, the director, James Wong, actually said that he didn't have a clue what he was saying half the time. Like he was still having to learn his lines phonetically. Like this was long before he'd started to truly grasp English which really surprised me because some of the emotional scenes work like really yeah. well. So I assumed that that must mean that he, you know, had some grasp of what he was saying, but to hear that most of it was just him reciting sounds that he didn't understand just elevates it even more for me. Yeah. I think, I think Jet's always been an underrated actor because he, he is, he is such a physical actor and he doesn't, and he has a very unique physicality about himself. Like he's not, he's not super, expressive but he know he knows how to really convey a lot with with small looks a little bit of body posture and you're right i mean he nails a lot he knows a lot of the emotional scenes in this film despite not having that good of aggressive english it's really quite remarkable and the fact that he clearly is playing two very different characters in this film and you're never once confused about which one is which because he embodies both so differently but so fully yeah yeah i mean there are, like I said, other films where he plays a bad guy and he always nails those performances. I, in fact, I, I, I wish we had more films where he was allowed to play the villain or at least be more of a hard-ass character because he does play it so well. And this is one of the films that I always picture when I think of Jet Li at the height of his power, which is hilarious because for me, that actually makes more sense now because the film was a few years later. So that means by the time I saw the one, I'd already seen Kiss of the Dragon, Romeo Must Die, uh, and I know not everybody likes this one, but Cradle to the Grave, and you know some of the the, the bigger American ones that he tr made to try and come over, and then the one happened. Now, of course, in retrospect, I'm amazed that didn't confuse me more because I remember watching the documentary back then saying that this was his first American film, but I guess well, for whatever reason that just didn't resonate. <laughs> Well, I, I don't think it, it wasn't his first starring film. It may, it may have been the first one where he was expected to to shoulder the entire star power by himself. Because I mean, Romeo Must Die came first, and before that was was Lethal Weapon Four and all of that. Yeah. But but I mean, this was one of the first films where he, he was expected to just be the the guy on the poster, and it was totally sold on his star power. And um, but you're right about about his his villainous turn in this because. Jed has got such a he's got such a quiet menace about him when he chooses to to play evil, because because that same sweetness, that same softness that he he conveys as a good character can very easily be turned to just like this this kind of quiet like vaguely threatening quality. And I, I'm having a hard time kind of explaining what I mean, but there's this quiet. But the idea that people who are truly tough and truly and truly dangerous are not necessarily loudmouths or or loud about their abilities to fight or to be violent. So the fact that he's so quiet and unassuming as a villain really works because 
That's how truly dangerous people are. They know they're badass. They don't have to go around boasting how badass they are. They'll just knock you out. And Jet really can convey that when he chooses to go hard ass mode. Because he's yeah, got a no. he's got a sway he's got a quiet swagger about him that you can you can sense that he knows what he's doing. Yeah, no, exactly. And uh, just to go back quickly to what I was saying, I have no idea why they don't count Romeo Must Die. The only thing I wonder is because it was filmed in Vancouver, but ultimately I don't care. Anyway, um, Jet Li doing his bad guy thing is actually interesting because I would say that there are some Hong Kong films, uh, sorry, not Hong Kong films, some Chinese films uh, that show a more sort of hard fronting face Jet Li as the hero. You definitely had those roles that showed you that he had a sort of more playful side, more friendly side, but there were a couple of roles that he did. I'm thinking of like the uh, the one where he played a bodyguard. I cannot for the life of me remember what the name of it was because I think it had three different names depending on where you released. But the bodyguard think, from Beijing. Bodyguard from Beijing. I think another one was the Enforcer, and I think maybe Red Dragon are the three that spring to mind where. He was still a good guy, but you got a slightly different personality to the martial arts folksy master that he'd been kind of stereotyped as for a long time. He was he was often kind of portrayed as like this this stoic character because so often in, in Chinese films and I'll say Hong Kong films too because it kind of there's overlap here because he was a mainland actor working a lot in Hong Kong. But Bruce Lee was is eternally popular in that area, and even to, even in Jet Li's day, they were still trying to kind of mold people in that Bruce Lee image and Jet Li was sort of that guy for them a lot where he was sort of the the kind of intensely quiet kung fu master like he there's in a lot of movies he doesn't really joke around he's not really playful he's sort of kind of the stoic badass character he doesn't get to show a lot of the natural charisma that he has in fact I would say he got to show his charisma more in his English language films than he did in, in, in most of his Hong Kong films I mean sure in the once upon a time in China films and the Feng Sayuk movies, he gets to be a little playful, a little silly, but more often than not, he was he was very stoic. Like he was very much how he was in Fist of Legend, where he was kind of like this kind of just very typical kung fu righteous ass kicker. You know, yeah. His only his only personality is that he's good and he'll beat your ass if you're bad. And yeah, that, that... no, I, I completely agree because growing up, not so much today, I I think Jet Li's legacy, whilst it's still very much there and intact, because he doesn't have that same sort of mythos around him that a Bruce Lee or a Jackie Chan does, I definitely feel like for a younger generation, Jet Li is sort of almost, not forgotten, but he's almost been supplanted by Donnie Yen. Because Jet Li, as you said, used to be the serious one. If you went and saw a Jet Li film, people were going to get beat down and it was going to be painful and he was going to make it look effortless and his speed was insane. And I feel like nowadays, if you were to say who are the big three, depending on the age group of the person you ask, I think a lot of people would say Donnie Yen. And if you said, what about Jet Li? They'd be like, oh yeah, you know what I mean? And it's, it's really mm -hmm. frustrating that that's kind of happened. It's because sadly Jet's had failing health these past few years. He doesn't he doesn't make a lot of films anymore. I've heard rumblings from people that he's he's probably he's maybe going to make something again soon. I don't know if his health his health has improved, but he he didn't really take a sabbatical from the public eye 
And in yeah. the, and in that time, you've had the rise of Ip Man, and and Donnie Yen has his, had this renaissance later in life, as in his early sixties, with you know Ip Man, and now in John Wick Four, he uh, he's had this career resurgence where now he's seen as like the heir apparent to Bruce Lee, when for years Donnie Yen was kind of the D-lister of that group. Yeah, you know, he was the guy who was he was almost the almost the never was out of the group of like Jackie Sammo. Jet and those guys. He was the guy who was in like the D level movies. But on a lot of time. No, sorry, I was just going to say I completely agree with you. He had some great films in his filmography, but you would never put him in the same breath as Sammo Hung, Jackie Chan, Yong Byu, Jet Li. And so many of my old Hong Kong Legends uh, magazines kind of prove that because the only film that he would ever really get sort of praise for would be Iron Monkey. Like all of the other films that are now considered cult classics, they've kind of retroactively become cult classics, in my opinion. Yeah, no one was talking about Legend of the Wolf back then. No one was talking about those that movie or 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 Tiger like, Cage. Yeah, or Ty or the Tiger Cage films. Yeah, or Tiger Cage Two or like High Voltage. No one was those movies are are very low rung. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest with you, they're very low rung Hong Kong films. I mean, he was in he was in 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 the Line of Duty Four, of course, which is a good movie. But again, that was the fourth installment of a movie where he wasn't even the main character. Yeah. So, and this is off topic, but over time, Don Ian has simply supplanted Sammo Hung and Jet Li and those guys because he's just aged better than them, to be blunt. Sammo is old and he's not really working anymore. Jackie's reaching the end of his career. Uh, Jed has had health issues. So, Don Ian got to where he is because he simply outlasted the other guys. And that's and that's not to talk bad about Donnie. Donnie is a very talented performer, but you put Primary Jet Li against Primary Donnie Yen, Jet Li smokes Donnie Yen from movie quality wise and an acting perspective too. Jet Li just was was a better performer and he made better films, but Donnie Yen simply kept going longer. Yeah, and I and I think one of the things that separated Jet Li. From a lot of his contemporaries at the time, which is something that I want to touch on, even though it's got very little to do with his performance in the one, but it did help, is I think a lot of people either don't know or forget that, you know, we've had this conversation sort of privately and, and offline or on social media a few times. In fact, we had one quite recently about how the types of Hong Kong films got made, got made because of the class of person that was making them. Well, Jet Li wasn't the same class of person as Jackie Chan and his brothers. You know, they grew up in the Chinese opera school and very much grew up sort of the equivalent of blue collar workers. But Jet Li was a prodigy of two martial arts masters and was expected to be a martial arts legend. And, you know, he went to the very prestigious academy. He got in it because of his martial arts skills. He was basically did nothing else other than practice wushu which again wasn't something that people had really seen on screen in the same way that jet was bringing it and the fact that he basically was a wushu master but before he was even a teenager and he was so dedicated and as you said that translated into very stoic martial art master character because that's basically who he was or at least that's what he was expected to be but his charisma and his personality still found ways to shine through. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and, and, as, and as he went on, he got more confident as a performer, and he learned he could emote more. 
And, you know, you grow. And when he was young, he was expected very much to be like this kung fu prodigy. And as he got older, he realized, hey, I can do more. And he was allowed to do more as he as he as he got more established. And it all kind of culminates in a movie like The One to bring us back on top. Because The One, again, shows these two different sides of Jet Li that are both fully formed and fully realized. And one thing I love about this to kind of tie it back to, to, into his martial arts training, I'm always a sucker for a movie that, that conveys character through combat. As yeah. an action cinema fan, that's that's one of the that's one of the hearts of the genre is the idea that you can tell story, you can explain character, you can explain motivation through physical violence, and it's done beautifully here because both characters not only are martial artists, they have very clear, unique styles. Like Good Jet Li, Hero Jet Li has a very soft, very wushu Tai Chi style. It's very flowy, full of circular motions. Evil Jet Li uses a very strong uh, kind of southern kind of fist, kind of straight, a lot of straight short punches, very direct in a straight line. And it very very much denotes their characters because Good Jet Li is very soft and kind of warm and easygoing. And Evil Jet Li is very hard and direct. And those really, again, it goes back to those are the two personalities that Jet's had throughout his career as an actor. Truly schismed and given their own realms to kind of exist in and kind of bounce off each other. To me, this is not the best Jet Li movie, but it may be the ultimate Jet Li movie. I don't know if that's hyper- if, again the hyperbole to say that, but again, it's not the best. But I think it may be the most Jet Li movie. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no, it makes perfect sense, and I, I agree with you. I've always remembered the scene of the two of them doing their cutters. And you've got, as you said, Evil Jet Li doing a direct line on a rooftop and all of his attacks are vicious and aggressive. And then you've got Good Jet Li surrounded by slightly questionable, but very much trying to invoke the sort of spirit of traditional martial arts in the background with the candles and the symbols on the wall. And he's doing, you know, wushu forms. And you've got one that is trying to flow around an opponent and deal with a problem and just go around it and then you've got evil Jet Li whose whole thing is that he just goes through an opponent I mean he even says something that you know I've heard in numerous martial arts classes that the shortest distance between you and the opponent is a straight line and it's the fact that he brought a lot of that himself to the film wanting both characters to have their own unique style is uh it shows how much he thought about the physical acting side of things as well as the facial and emotional acting side of things. Mm-hmm. And, I th- and I think, I think that's a, a good illustration of why if this movie had involved the rock, if it had used Dwayne Johnson, it would not be nearly as good because so many things that make this movie good were resulting from putting gently in the role and kind of happy accidents that kind of sprung from the butterfly effect of having him in this role. You know, his physicality, his his the way he approaches the character. Because if he, if it was if it was Dwayne Johnson, it would just be this kind of generic, forgettable, you know, movie. It'd be like Arnold Schwarzenegger's The Sixth Day. Do you remember The Sixth Day? No one really remembers The Sixth Day because it's not that memorable. It would I mean, have been I, just. I I remember The Sixth Day. It was all, but yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. <laughs> I mean, but it's not a top tier Arnold movie by any means, and no. that's the. That's what Dwayne Johnson's the one would have been, because that's because what makes this interesting is are are the things 
that kind of spring out of having Jet Li in this role. Uh, well, that well that and the fact that some of the supporting cast is surprisingly good for a movie like this. Like you got, you know, you've got a couple of really good actors in here with really questionable hairstyles, like Jason Statham and Delroy Lindo, and uh, and so the, the, they definitely add to it as well. But I mean, but that's more of just dressing on on the side. That's kind of garnish on the plate of the, of this main course, which is again seeing the two sides of Jet Li basically fully represented and then squaring off with each other. So I guess to bring it back around, the, the advertisements were right to kind of sell it on the idea of Jet Li versus Jet Li because that's really the most fascinating thing about this movie. Yeah. Yeah. And that there's 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 three things I, I want to kind of say there because you, you've allowed me to, to introduce another member of the cast that I was really nervous that you were going to steal from me. But also, um, you said about Jason Statham. I watched, because uh, I've got the 88 films, blu-ray release that they did and i was so happy to finally have an excuse to break it open and um i also watched an interview that they did with the director james wong and he made me laugh so much when he was talking about jason statham because he uh he was like oh you know we we had jason statham before he was a big star which was true you know i'm not disputing that but it was when he said you know he hadn't really done anything before this and i think he was just a guy that uh you know, used to invite people into nightclubs. So he had that sort of uh, accent for the job. And I'm like, hang on. You don't know that Jason Statham was an Olympic diver. He was not some guy that was inviting people into nightclubs. And also, Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels and the two Guy Ritchie films he did that made him pretty big in his own right. I think most people would argue he had done a little bit of stuff before he was a supporting character in the one. But that's just me. <laughs> yeah, he was still on the come up for sure, but that definitely is discounting what he had done before because, again, Snatch and Lockstock, those, those are great movies. And he, he definitely made an impression in those films. But uh, but I don't necessarily know if James Wong is the most astute director I've ever, ever seen. Like I said, I think I think a lot of the movie is good. Kind of not because of of the directing, not because of the script, but because of what the actors bring to it. Yeah. But uh, yeah. But the one thing I have to say about Statham in this movie, and it's not so anything on his performance. His performance is fine, but and I know he's looked like this in other films too. But his hair really really unsettles me in this movie for some reason. I don't know if I've just gotten so used to seeing bald Jason Statham, but Jason Statham with, with like a regular like Bruce Willis hairstyle in this really kind of wigs me out a little bit no pun intended <laughs> yeah i mean i think for me everybody in this film you know it's it's a nature of of the beast i i hate to say that this is an old film because it's really not compared to some of the other films that i talk about but the truth is this film came out in 2001 and it's 2023 whether i like it or not this is now an older film and everyone in this looks so damn young you know yeah the only one i am gonna like you know because there's one other actor in this that we haven't mentioned yet and i'm now going to to do my best to say this and not and not sound uh ridiculous when i do but there is one actor in this that doesn't actually appear to age i swear and that is the female lead of this film carla gugino because Rewatching this just made me, it made me stick out how, like, well she's aged. Cause honestly, it's like, you haven't changed. How have you achieved this? 
Yeah, I'm, try- I'm trying to be. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be polite and say that she's a very, very attractive woman. Uh, I, I'll, I'll be a grown up and not be not be lecherous. But she is she's gorgeous in this film, and she's really she's good in it for what little bit she's given to do. Um, one of my one of my complaints about this film is I wish we had seen more of of Evil Jet Li and her relationship as her her like evil version because you don't really yes. get a lot of her of her as the evil version of herself. And you don't you don't really see a lot of Evil Jet Li outside of this outside of this Malevin Force who's trying to basically destroy Good Jet Li because the movie is very very. Trim. I mean, it's 120 minutes without credits. Like it literally is 100. Is it's literally 80 minutes on the dot without credits. And so there's no real fat on this film at all. It just goes, goes, goes. Which I appreciate as a guy who has to watch a lot of movies for his job and all that. But I mean, but I would have liked to have seen how like those evil characters like interact with each with each other. Like 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 what were the, what were like their like what was like their home life like? Were they just like scheming like Batman villains? Like, 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 what do those characters do when they're not, like, you know, breaking each other out of prison, you know? Like, I wish I had seen a little, little bit more of the, of the, of their interactions outside of that one jailbreak scene, which is really, it's been, it's been memed a lot on the internet. Like, it's, it's actually the thing that kind of prompted this conversation between you and me was the idea that she breaks Jet Li, evil Jet Li out of prison, gets him out of the death, out of the death penalty by using a bomb hidden inside of a rat. <laughs> And not just, hang on, hang on, not just a rat, a rat that's hidden inside of her high-heeled shoe that has an openable, you know, retractable door that the rat could come out of and no one notices. And that rat's got the biggest pair of testicles you've ever seen on a rat, too. I mean, I know that's a weird thing to say, but in high definition, in 1080p, that rat's testicles are really noticeable in the film. And it's just the most bizarre thing, uh... And, you know, I watched the commentary on this movie to kind of prepare for this show. And they mentioned, they talk about why they chose the rat, like why they did that. And it goes back to why I think that so much of what's good about this movie is not necessarily on the director and the writer. Because they never seem like they put a lot of thought into this kind of stuff. Like, like all, all their explanations were very surface level. Like they explained why she used the rat was because the good version of Carla's character is a veterinarian. So clearly, the evil version of her would use animals for bad, and that was their entire uh, expl- that, that was their entire explanation for why that exists. And I was like, uh, really? There's got to be more to it than that. You can't just be because good character helps animals, bad character hurts animals. Yeah, and, like, but that's literally that was their only like explanation of that really bizarre scene. I'm going to be that person for maybe the one and only time on this podcast. I'm going to just say it. I couldn't give a flying fuck why they used a rat because I do not remember anything else about that scene other than how Carla looked. And I, and I am right with you that I would have liked to have seen more of that evil version of her. And the fact that that rat blows up and as that rat blows up, I hear... Oh, wow. And then we get disturbed. I'm like, I don't care that it's been memed to death. This scene was surgically and made for me. Like, there's no way I can hate any of this. <laughs> it's it's so incredibly thousand one. Uh, but yes, I, I'll get a, that's why it's made for me. <laughs> and I'll get to this for a second. But I do want to mention that they did they did mention one other thing in that scene about about Carla's character. They do mention the fact that the dress she's wearing in that scene, uh, the dress she's wearing was so tight 
which you can see if you watch the movie, that they actually had to make two because the one she walks into the scene with was so tight, she couldn't sit down in it. So oh, they had to... And if you go back and look at it, you can clearly tell it's a very form-fitting dress. Um, yes. But they had to make another one just so she could sit in the in the very next scene. But that's the only other insights they had in the entire scene was like, again, bad, bad character hurts animals, good character cares for animals, and then dress too tight. That was the level of, of insight I got from their commentary. But anyway, back to the music. I love that this movie has a a wonderfully dated new metal soundtrack. Because in a way, the needle drops in this film, the the the, 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 the new metal music in this film actually so on the nose describes the vibe of each scene it's in. Like, like you know, that chaotic scene is set to disturbed at the very when he's breaking out of the prison. And later on, when he's in the car, Evil Dread Lee's in the car driving, he, he turns on the radio, and the only song he likes is is I'm a Sinner by Drowning Pool. Because, get it, he's yeah. the bad guy, he's a sinner. Super on the nose, super obvious. But the film does not care, because it's that kind of movie. And I appreciate that level of, of lunk-headed sincerity. I'm a big fan of truly dopey, dopely sincere movies, and the and the one is a very dopely sincere movie, and I love that about it. Again, when Evil Jet Li and Good Jet Li are fighting at the end, they literally play Papa Roach, and the lyrics say, it's in our nature to destroy ourselves, it's in our nature to kill each other, while they're fighting each other, because again, it's so on the nose and obvious, and it could wow. be eye-rolling, it could, it could be groan-inducing, but it's done so sincerely that I truly believe it's camp. Like, it's yeah. so knowingly camp. And if there's such a thing as new metal with an NU, then I really believe that this movie is new camp. It's the only way to describe it. And I love that about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll be honest, the whole soundtrack of this film, there wasn't a single song that came on that I didn't already know. New metal, or just metal in in, in the case of Disturbed, uh, is 100% what I was listening to at the time. And this film could not have done any more to appeal to me at that very specific moment in time. I still listen to that kind of music. I still listen to Disturbed. Not so much Papa Roach and uh, Drowning Pool, but definitely Disturbed. And the fact that uh, the film literally opens with Let the Bodies Hit the Floor is like, ah, yes, I remember this point in time. These were good years. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think I was a sophomore in college when this came out. So that, that makes, that makes, that all lines up. And I was listening to the same kind of music. And I actually saw, give you an idea, I actually saw Papa Roach in concert, I think, the same year. To give you an idea of where I was as, as a young man in my early 20s. So again, it all appeals to me too. But looking back on it, it's, it is goofy. And again, it's on the nose, but it's, but it's just so earnest about it that I don't care. You know? Yeah. Yeah, and and for me, it's like, it's the same as watching a film in the 70s and getting the saxophone music and getting the sort of hard-nosed noir music, or you watch an 80s music and you get the synth wave. If you're watching a 2000s action movie and there isn't heavy metal or new metal blasting out of the soundtrack, I'm disappointed because it's such a time capsule of the period. It's either going to be sort of alternate pop punk or it's going to be new metal and if it's an action movie it's probably going to be metal yeah and i would argue that that is better than where we are nowadays where all the needle drops movies nowadays are movies from like the 70s for some reason yeah like guardians of the galaxy's had guardians of the galaxy as much as i like that franchise has ruined modern day needle drops in films because now it's all movies that not even it's not it's, not, it's all music that not that not i listened to as a kid 
but my dad listened to as a kid. And so we've really, yeah. we've really kind of lost the joy of like modern needle drops, which I think the, the early 2000s were the last heyday of that kind of thing where you could have like the soundtrack with music from, and it would be nothing but like artists of the day who mattered. Well, the other thing as well that I think this film really does is, as I as I said, the way that the Disturbed track comes on is synced to what's happening yeah. on screen. And they do that with every single song. And I don't feel like that happens these days. It just kind of feels like music starts playing and stuff happens. I mean, Guardians of the Galaxy maybe is, is an exception to the rule because, yeah, James Gunn does tend to, to, to mix the music with what's happening on screen really well. But so many of the other films, the trailers, uh, sync up what's happening with the music and the cuts and what's happening. But the films very rarely do. It's just playing in the background while stuff happens. And watching this film today, it really stood out to me how well the music matched what was happening on screen. It's because I think I think that we we're in a we're in a post uh, post irony. I don't mean post. I think we're still in a in a time of ironic detachment with 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 the way media is being made. Everyone is yeah. so afraid of sincerity. So we've talked about this before. People filmmakers are still afraid of sincerity. They're still afraid of of doing things that can be perceived as camp. Because again, I really do believe the one is new in you camp. It's it's new camp, and it, much like the same way like 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 Batman in the sixties was campy, the one is campy for the two thousands, and filmmakers have have not yet found what what is camp for the twenty twenties yet, or, or even the late twenty tens. They haven't yet embraced that whole aesthetic yet, or that whole idea. We're still in this. We're still in this whole kind of Marvel irony era of of characters rolling their eyes and saying. Well, that just happened. You know, that's kind of where we're still at with filmmaker. We're, we're slowly getting out of that. We're getting a little bit more back to sincerity, a little bit more back to camp. But there's still a real ironic detachment from from that whole vibe. So that's why you don't see that as much. I think because I think filmmakers who see that nowadays kind of turn their nose up at it because they feel like it's too silly, it's too on the nose. But what they don't get is like you know, like what I've said, the fact that it is silly and it is on the nose. Is what makes it enjoyable. It's what makes it endearing. It's what makes it charming. Camp is not inherently bad. Camp can be enjoyable. Camp can be fun. Camp is not a dirty word. And so often people who who aren't okay with themselves or aren't okay with what they enjoy equate camp with bad, or they 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 equate guilty pleasure with bad. That they, they they focus on the guilty and not the pleasure. When the important thing in the phrase guilty pleasure is pleasure, not guilt. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think I've said this before to you on the show, but I've definitely said it on the show if it wasn't to you. I don't really like the phrase guilty pleasure. I understand it and I understand why it's used. But four episodes of the show have been related to Power Rangers. And I could say that Power Rangers is a guilty pleasure. It wouldn't actually be accurate because I don't really watch it anymore as such. But I don't because I enjoyed it at a certain point in time and I enjoy talking about it now. In the same way, I enjoy talking about action movies, so it's just something I enjoy. I don't give a fuck if somebody else thinks that I shouldn't. There's there's no guilt involved, and it's the same with the uh, with the one. Like I en enjoy the hell out of it. I enjoy the soundtrack. And I enjoy the performances. There's some parts of it that uh, unfortunately haven't aged as well, 
but I was genuinely surprised how well it held up in general, especially, as you said, now I can see it in HD on a big screen. And I've, I, you know, I, I own this film on VHS. You know, it's like, it's a, it's a massive step up from the DVD that I've had for a long time. And it's a progression of how well I can enjoy something that I'm still watching this 20 years later. But also, you mentioned Marvel. You mentioned, uh, uh, how, you know, it's a good time capsule of its time. But there's one element of this film that I've really, really been waiting to sort of ask you could, because I find it so funny. What is the opening line of this film and what is the basic premise of this film involved that is currently all the rage? Like it's a brand new thing that we just invented. I was going to bring this up and I completely forgot about it as we talked about, as we talked about Carla and, and those different things. But you're right. The multiverse, it, the entire person, few moments of the movie is, is, is spent explaining the concept of a multiverse. And I want to say sincerely, Scott, I think this may be the first time I had ever heard the word multiverse outside of a comic book, outside of like DC Comics or Marvel Comics. I think it's the first time I had ever seen it in a non-superhero setting, especially in a live-action setting. Like I, I had read the words in like in like Superman comics and like X-Men comics, but I had never actually heard the word used until the one, at least not that I can remember. Yeah, no, that, I'm. I think I might be. I might be the same. I mean parallel realities and dimensions had definitely been a thing in like star trek for a long long time but they always they never used that specific term of multiverse so i i'm with you i think this might be the first time that a mainstream film used that word to describe parallel realities yeah and it's and it's and it's very and it very much plays with that idea that's become so popular in the in the marvel cinematic universe where you have like the alternate versions of things like they have the Hilari- and we've completely glossed over this one, but the hilarious little side joke of all the different alternative Jet Lees. Yeah. And uh, and that's such a great little sight gag. You have, you know, you have Jet Li with a blonde wig. as His name is Spin Law. And it's just ridiculous to find that. Or Jet Li with, like, Rasta Dreads, you know? And that's that's kind of the wonderfully sincere kind of goofy quality about this that really makes it work. If it, if it didn't have that, the movie would not work as well. If it, if it was too straight-laced, if it was too po-faced and serious... It would all fall apart because it's got to be a little winking to make it work. A hundred percent, because like you, you know, the Jet Li at the start of the film that gets killed, the one that's being escorted by the SWAT team, is literally called Lawless. And yeah. when and when they're sending him to the penal colony in the Hades universe, and you're like, <laughs> that that's not an accident. Like like you said, everything yeah. is 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 so surface level but that's why i like it like you said it works because they're not trying to be overtly clever like this isn't a predecessor to everything everywhere all at once it's not trying to be that clever and in depth with what it's saying this is just all basically the the table dressing for your martial arts action film yes it goes back to the idea that movies can just be fun and like i always get the whenever i think about things like this i always think of of yeah, that's about the whole guy. I, the whole concept of movies for guys who like movies. Well, this is very much a a movie for guys who just like movies. Like it's it's like it's I put it in the same category as like lazy Saturday afternoon watching that you would put like Roadhouse or or let me see another example or like again like a Highlander a, a movie that would play on like, like cable television that you just kind of sit and casually watch on a Sunday afternoon or Saturday afternoon. You maybe eat a sandwich, have a drink, and just enjoy yourself. You don't you don't think too deeply about it. 
and just enjoy it and let it wash over you. And you kind of get wrapped up in the goofy little details of it and just have a good time. Because not every movie to, needs to be picked apart. Not every movie needs to be overly analyzed. Because I guarantee you that, that Wong did not spend a lot of time, James Wong did not spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, the, the deeper meanings of Jet Li versus Jet Li or why Jet Li would have roster dreads or why, why evil Jet Li from that one dimension would be called lawless and have slick back black hair. And, you know, are this kind of, they didn't put that much thought into it. They just thought, well, this would be a fun detail. This would be a goofy thing to do. This would be fun. This would be something that'll look awesome on screen. Let's just do it. And sometimes movies can be, be that thin and still be enjoyable. Yeah, 100%. And to be honest, the thing that surprised me the most, since we're, we're sort of rewinding a little bit, that opening sequence where Jet Li hunts himself, uh, you know, Yulaw goes after Lawless. Aside from the fact it always makes me chuckle because you've got uh, what, who would definitely now be known as Hank from Breaking Bad as Dean the head Norris, of that yeah, SWAT yeah. team, good old Dean Norris. Yeah. But you've also, that's where you get the the first moments of Eulaw using his like enhanced powers, I'm going to call them powers, to basically just wipe the floor with them. But you get that sort of Matrix-esque sequences where there's slow motion, he picks up a guy and uses him to deflect bullets. You get the bullet time shots. You get uh, CGI bodies just floating through the air. And what surprised me is they actually have aged pretty well. The, the sequences of Jet Li just smashing people who are currently, you know, moving slower than he is. I'm not going to lie. Like, it looks better than some stuff that I've seen recently trying to pull off the same effect. And I wasn't expecting that from a film made in 2001, you know? I think it's because if you go back and watch a lot of the behind the scenes stuff, they actually tried to innovate a lot of technology for those scenes. They didn't, they weren't trying to just copy bullet time and doing, doing that. I mean, it's clearly Matrix influenced, but they weren't using the same techniques. They were trying to innovate stuff and they did, they did a lot of techniques that weren't really used since then. They didn't really innovate anything that was still continue to be used. So the, those effects looks have kind of a unique quality that only exists in that movie. So that, that yeah. I think that's a little bit why they're ageless because you didn't see them carried on into other films. You didn't see it a hundred times in other lesser movies. It just kind of existed in this one time and place. So it gives it kind of a unique original quality and it's striking. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with that. I mean, there are other CGI effects throughout the film that haven't aged as well that I wouldn't say that they're bad, but you can definitely notice them or they stand out a bit more. But any of the slow motion fighting or the effects where he is demonstrating just how much more powerful he is than a regular human, I think have aged pretty well. And in some respects, it's like, I kind of wish that there were some superhero films, especially the ones that are trying to go for this enhanced human, but not like God level being. It's like, this film nails it. Like he's able to punch through doors and rip doors off. And, you know, when he wants to get serious, he can body an entire crew of people. And it's actually kind of funny, like, when he stopped the motorbikes, I was like, ah, RRR has a very similar scene in this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, the, and that, that's, a very, that's a very memorable scene of him smashing the cop with the two bikes. I always think of that as, like, his Incredible Hulk. Like, that's a very good Incredible Hulk thing where he puts up the two bikes and, like, sandwiches them together like that. It always makes me think of the Incredible Hulk. But you're right, and there's not, a, there's not a, enough movies that tried to do their own visual thing like this. And another effect I think that aged really well is the facial replacement stuff that they did to really have Jet Li fight Jet Li. 
I mean, yep. you don't see, you don't see it a lot of them because they, they they mix it really well with old school body doubles and things like that. But the facial replacement stuff they do for the time period again, considering this was twenty two years ago, is really impressive. Yeah, no, I agree. I would I would also like to add that this was made in two thousand and one. So the following year, if I remember correctly, Star Wars Attack of the Clones came out. And if you rewatch that, and even uh, Revenge of the Sith in 2005, the face replacements for the older actors when the, they're using younger doubles have aged horribly. Oh, and, it's terrible, yeah. But this film, no, I, I know that's what they've done, but there are scenes in it where I see both faces and I'm like, that still looks good. Like, that still looks like there's two Jet Lees there. Yeah, I mean, like, if, if you know how they did it, 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 you can tell. But even if you, but, but, but just looking at it casually, it, it does the trick. It convinces your eye. Unlike Attack of the Clones, where you have, you know, Christopher Lee's face on a younger body, it's so clearly jarring in Attack of the Clones. Yes. Um, and it's not jarring in in the one. Is it 100% convincing all the time? No. But it but it fits in with the rest of the movie, where it's not it doesn't pull you out of the movie, and that's kind of remarkable considering that the one is not a big budget movie. You know, it's not it's not this huge you know special effects extravaganza, but yet these effects that it has are really effective. No, I I completely agree. I think that's part of the reason why I always enjoyed it as a kid because you had this really good melding of sci-fi and action which I've always enjoyed anyway. And it's like, you know, the whole opening segment, which takes place in an alternate reality, but it, it so closely mirrors our reality. And then you basically get the entire scene again, but now in LA. And it, the difference is, is that this Jet Li is one of the SWAT team rather than the prisoner. I really liked that. That whole, sequ- that whole doubling of sequences and events works for me. And then, you know, you get that, that initial confrontation between the two Jet Lees, and it's just wall-to-wall action and it just works like in my head I, I remember there being more martial arts stuff than there actually is but then when I rewatched it it's like there's so much more to this with all of the various gunplay uh and some of the Jason Statham stuff and I mean the fight between Jet Li and Delroy Lindo I mean I remembered that and that is such a brutal scene because Rodecker just stands no chance of defeating the superpowered version of Jet Li. I mean, I don't think he stands a chance of beating a normal version of Jet Li, but the way in which that scene is done just perfectly, in, in my opinion, showcase someone that is enhanced, but isn't like indestructible going up against a normal guy. Like it's, it doesn't matter that in theory you can beat him. It's not happening practically, you know? Yeah. And, and that to me, that's a good, that's a fight from a technical perspective that shows that body double fights can work really, really well. So that's clearly a body double fight. Like Delroy Lindo's not doing those movements, but yeah. it's shot in such a way where it's clear. You can tell what's going on. It conveys the movement, and you can feel the impact of the of the scene. Like you feel it, and that's that's something that's lost with a lot of with a lot of modern action choreography. And it's not that it's not cut a lot. There's a lot of cuts in it to to hide the body double, but it's a really effective little scene. And again, the storytelling is very on point because right, it is a brutal scene, and it really sells the characters. Like you you understand that. That Lindo's character is uh is com- is committed to being this hero. He's going to be a cop up until the moment where he can't be a cop anymore. Until, basically, he's going to he's going to try to be the hero. He's going to try to do the right thing up until he can't breathe anymore. Until he's in the ground, and that's conveyed again, conveying character through action. 
And that's one thing that the one does really, really well, is it conveys character through, again, physical violence. Which, to me, is what is what so much of action movies should be. Yeah, yeah. The other actor that I do want to give a quick mention to before we start, like, sort of dissecting certain bits about it is in the alternate version, you have, well, what basically amounts to a cameo now, but from Dean Norris, but his kind of equivalent is James Morrison's Aldrich. And it, and it always makes me chuckle when I rewatch films like this because there's so many people that just pop up in it that would go on to be bigger in other stuff and like, James Morrison basically played an almost identical character in 24, the, the Kiefer Sutherland show for mm-hmm. a good three to four years as Bill. And it, it's just so funny seeing him here just be the, the, the SWAT officer that's just like trying to do the right thing. And he's like, everybody's so confused. And he ends up basically being the leader of the SWAT team and trying to keep, uh, Carla, Carla's character safe. And I thought he did a good job considering he's clearly outclassed, like, you know, James James Morrison is a pretty tough dude in terms of like the characters he plays, but he's not going to be uh, matching Jet Li anytime soon. No, no, and uh, and he uh, and he does a lot with the small part. Like it's not it's not a big part, but he's memorable in it. And so many of those characters that you're thinking of are really day players from James Wong's uh, time on the X Files. So I mean, he he brought yeah. in a lot of his troop from when he was doing a lot of TV for Fox. So it's not surprising that James Morrison went on to be in 24, another Fox television show, because that's where a lot of those guys came from. The movie's kind of littered with people who were in those James Wong-directed X-Files episodes. So you see a lot of those TV people kind of randomly pop up throughout the movie, and I was, that's kind of neat about it, too. That it's like He's got his own little troop of like TV actors who he brought with him. The other thing that uh, you know we were talking about, the effects... The one thing that I think this film does differently to almost every other multiverse type film I know of is the way in which they explain a how it all works. Because, you know, hearing Jason Statham trying to talk like he understands all this scientific stuff is just hilarious in and of its own right. But also universes are formed when a black hole is created, which happens after a sun goes supernova. And whenever that happens, they use that to somehow travel between the different dimensions. But. The biggest difference is that traveling between the various different realities is not pleasant. And they literally have their bodies essentially disintegrate and then ripped out of one reality. And then they get reassembled when they enter the other. And it's like they're screaming all the way. And then they essentially get like completely taken out for a good few minutes when they get into the next reality. And I really like that aspect of it. Like, it shows the stress and trauma. It's not just a simple, oh yeah, we'll open up a portal and just walk through. Like changing reality itself is nothing. Like I really like the the attention to detail that they gave there. That it's quite a traumatic experience, but also the effects of seeing Statham Lee get broken down molecule by molecule again. I know I've already said this, but it doesn't look like shit. And considering we're talking about a twenty three year old movie. That's kind of impressive. Yeah, and and it's a fairly clever idea that that it's that it's something that they can do all the time. That these these wormholes kind of work like weather patterns, like they they occur, occur randomly, and they have to try to predict where they're going to be. It solves one of the problems with time travel in portal movies, which is why wouldn't you just do that all the time if you could? And, exactly. And that and that one story thing really allows them to avoid that whole trap. It's a, it's a, it's, a, it's one of the few. 
and it sounds, it sounds like a condescending back in any compliment, but it's one of the few really clever things about the movie. Yeah, and like you said, it's got very efficient storytelling. Like, throughout the first 20 minutes, you basically get little snippets of the relationship between everybody except Gabe. And you get Evil Jet Li's backstory is that he basically used to be a, a multiverse cop. He ended up killing a version of himself in self-defense, which makes sense. And then felt the the benefits of doing so because the energy flowed into him and all the other versions of him is the is what is the reason why he's doing this and uh i really like the idea that he used to be rodeca's partner and like yeah. you say i feel like there was so much more they could have done character wise with all of that i'd have loved to have maybe seen some flashbacks of evil jet lee being a good jet lee we get to see the other version of of carla we get to see how they got where they got but they do the same thing with Jason Statham's character as well. They imply so much about how he's come from a really rough place and he's lived through war is the impression that I got. And yeah. I, th I think Statham does a good job of selling that when they have that scene where they kind of know that they don't have the ability to win this fight. So they're going to go out in a blaze of glory. But he, he, you know, when he shows him that bomb and he's like, I, I know what you've been through. Statham just sells it with that look because he's like somewhere else for those five minutes. It's like he's he's having a full flashback moment. And I yeah. I find it interesting that they were able to work in so much little details. And like you said, it's not necessarily because the script. Well, it is because of the script, but it, it's sold by the actors like this cast would all pretty much go on to be in bigger things. And the fact that they managed to get so many of these people in the right place at the right time probably couldn't have been repeated even five or six years later because they probably couldn't afford them all. It's true. It's true. And uh, the, the line you're thinking about with, with Statham is the line I actually love. Because uh, again, it, it tells so much about his character. And in one simple sentence, they go, remember, not everyone, I know where you're from, but remember, not everyone in this world is a combatant. So that, that implies whatever world he was from, like you said, he was in a world that was incredibly violent. So yeah. that, 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 that sketches so much in just a single sentence about what that character is. And that, that's a nice little bit of economy. And, uh, and I, I love the scene where, where they reveal that, 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 uh, that you law was there were Lindo's partner because Lindo comes to gently when he's in prison. And it is so much like a Hannibal Lecter scene from silence of the lambs. Like you got you got Jet like restrained in his little in his little like prison outfit behind the bars, and and Delroy Lindo's the cop that comes in they're talking, and and Jet's being all cool and and sinister but very friendly at the same time, and it's so much it's so much like a weird like kung fu Hannibal Lecter thing, and it's just a, ju a juxtaposition that I would have never thought of on my own, but to see Jet Li in that role is to me it was always kind of amusing. And I love that little moment. And I wish there'd almost been more of that where you could see. Again, I, I honestly just want more Evil Jet Li because I thought I found Evil Jet Li to be a lot of fun. Yeah. And I just wish there'd been more of that. Like, I would love to have seen some bad. I would love to have seen him killing more of the good Jet Li's. Like, I would love to have seen him, like, like beating down, like, Swedish Jet Li or beating down Rastafarian Jet Li. Because like, even if it was just, like, a little quick montage scenes, like, I know, and I know it's probably a budgetary thing. I know they probably couldn't afford to do that, but. Part of me wishes they had had just little flashes of, of who these characters were before that moment. But then again, it would do away with some of the, the leanness of the film. Because 
again, what works so well about the one is that it's it's short and its pace just does not let up. Something is always happening to keep the movie going. And again, it's so yeah. short and it, and it's so propulsive that it just it's over before you know it. Yeah, because I mean, right after the the two opening action sequences, you have a bit of a lull. You meet the second Carla character, TK. You meet the SWAT guys again outside of their helmets, and then you're almost immediately right back into another action scene in the hospital in the MRI. Which yes. I will also have to I have to do a little bit of a nit well not a nitpick, but I got I gotta say this as somebody that works in hospitals, that fucking nurse. I might have found her amusing when I was younger, but as an adult that has been in the room when, you know, things are being said in a hospital situation, holy Christ, does that woman not deserve her job? <laughs> I know it's a fictional character, but unfortunately, I know nurses like that, and it drives me insane how easily they forget that what is just a nine-to-five routine for us is not something that the general public experience maybe once or twice in their life if they're lucky. And the way she was just like, oh, for Christ's sake, you're going for an MRI, not heart surgery. It's like, you could get fired over here for doing something like that. You know, it just, oh my God, did that like make me angry in a way I did not expect. And I knew that line was coming too, because I remembered yeah. it. It's, it's funny you say that, because I also, in my day job, I also work in healthcare. Um, and so I've known many nurses in my life. And you're right. It's not necessarily a, a good way for a nurse to behave, but I think it's it's unintentionally realistic because I have seen many nurses who do talk to patients that way, and that line's there to make the audience laugh. It's clearly a a hold for laughter kind of line in a movie, but it is unintentionally very realistic to how callous and cold nurses can become after doing their jobs for a while. So I, I like yeah, I, I had that same reaction that you did, where I'm like it felt like a little jarring. But I th it was really unintentionally very honest at the same time. So I think it's one of the, almost one of those little happy accidents of realism that they didn't intend, but really rings true if you actually know that world. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But the, the one thing that did make me chuckle is uh, when the fight kicks off and the evil Jet Li comes in and he gets ambushed by you know the, the multiverse agents. Um, I love their guns, by the way. That's a great prop. Yeah, but. I love the fact that he escapes by by jumping through the MRI machine, and it just made me laugh because I I mean I'm not saying that there there aren't hollow MRIs out there, but I know if he tried to do that in like our hospital, he'd meet the end of the MRI machine and realize that he's just essentially trapped himself. <laughs> yeah, uh, every time I watch that, I always think are MRI machines. I actually never thought MRI machines were hollow, so I always figured that was always just Hollywood nonsense to have him dive through it. Uh. But, uh, yeah, that was, that was a kind of a weird, like, definitely a, a movieism. But, uh, I do like the hospital scene quite a bit. I also like how condescending Evil Jet Li is when they got their guns on him. And he's like, you want me to get down on the floor? But the floor is full of germs. It's a hospital. You want me to get sick? Yeah. And it's, it's just, like, he's got, like, like, this, like, Smug Jet Li should not work as well as Smug Jet Li does. But Smug Jet Li is really entertaining. Yeah, and the fact that he just, he's so, like, nonchalant when people have guns pointed at him it just works so well because he's just like guys i know that there's a lot of you with guns and you think that means something but i can literally get to you disarm you and kill you before you have time to pull that trigger and it's so funny when as the film goes on you realize that's not just a vain threat he literally does that multiple points in the film 
one really sad, which we'll get to, but in the hospital scene especially, he really starts to ramp up how much he's essentially cheating by using his universe power. And I really appreciate that because this whole film has a very slow buildup where you know he can do these things, but he tends to not use them. And then as the film goes on, he gets less and less patient and he's just like, no, I've had enough of playing it safe. Let's just start ripping things apart and smacking people in the head with motorbikes, you know? Yeah, because he's got things to do. He's, 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 on, he's on a schedule. He's got places to be. And uh, I do like that too, because again, it's a, a it's another clever thing of, of the movie. Because again, the movie doesn't seem very clever in the beginning, but as it goes on, there's lots of little things that make it clever. And that's right, the way he ramps up his ability, the way he ramps up showing him what he can do as the movie goes on, works really well. Because by the end, when, when Good Jet Lee and Bad Jet Lee are squaring off, you fully understand what you're seeing, and it feels it feels very epic. Even though, in reality, it's a pretty small fight scene, but because of how it's been established, it feels bigger and grander than it actually is. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I, I just wanted to rewind quickly a little bit, and the one thing that I think works for me in this film that some other films struggle in is Gina as, as TK. Her and Jet Li's chemistry really bounces off the screen for me. And I love the fact that they made the decision that she could speak Mandarin as well. And it's only brief, but the scenes in which they do it, it really helps give the idea that these two have been together for a very long time. And it's like they don't waste any time trying to like give them a problem or an issue. These two are just a loving couple and they work. And I really appreciate that because some films, especially like you say, given how lean this is, would try and like fill it with history we don't need their history it you know that these two have been together for a long time just from the way they are with each other and i really like that yeah and uh and again, that's one thing that is nice and, and, I, and I believe that i believe the chinese and the mandarin they speak i believe that was actually jet lee's idea from her from her because they, they do mention that on the commentary on on the film and i believe they mentioned that that was actually jet lee's idea to kind of give them a sense of familiarity to each other anyway and it works very well you're right so it's, it's one of it's one of the few quiet moments in the film and again, it's very, very brief because again, the movie just doesn't keep going. Um, but it does work. It works very well in, in adding shading and in, in, again, sketching shading very quickly into this very fast film. Because every bit of nuance, every bit of character is again all very, it's all layered in very, very quickly. So it has to paint very broad strokes with very little. Yeah. And I think it, it helps too because you go immediately from that scene to the hospital scene. But in the hospital scene, before it all kicks off, you have that moment where Jet doesn't tell the police what he saw because he knows that they think he's crazy, but he does trust her enough to tell her, which is not how it would usually go down in a lot of films. He would just keep it to himself, and that would form some kind of a riff because she'd know he's lying, which she does in the film anyway. And then when you get the two of them having that emotional moment of this is what he's seen. She quite clearly doesn't necessarily believe him, but she also can't deny that strange things are happening. Like that's the moment when she's like, people get older, Gabe. They don't get stronger. They don't get faster. It's like there's clearly been some worry brewing underneath the surface from her for a while. And the way in which the two of them play off of each other in that scene just works. Like it really annoys me that they don't have more scenes together to just play off of each other because they're actually really good. Yes, yeah, so th th there's a real tenderness to it. I mean, they really, I mean, they really are a a beautiful little couple that seems like on paper you wouldn't think they would work, but they 
they really have a kind of a, an intimate quality almost immediately, and they've they've got real chemistry. And that's not something that you can always say for Jet Li movies because Jet Li movies tend to be very chaste. He doesn't always have a lot of chemistry with his co-stars, but I don't know if it's just if it's just Carla's just innate charisma. But her and Jet Li have a lot of have a lot of chemistry with each other in this film. Like you really kind of believe they are this this kind of happy little suburban couple. Yeah, no, I I, I agree, and I I do think some of it helps that Carla is a very good actress. Like I've never seen a role of hers where I think ah oh, she's just phoning it in or ah this isn't really working for me. Like I've everything she's ever done, I think she always gives a hundred percent. But I think the true is also. No, I think the same is also true of Jet Li. And yes, maybe at the time they didn't know what they had, but I think those two are very similar in that they can emote a lot of emotion and tenderness without needing pages and pages of dialogue. And I think maybe that's why it works, because they're very similar in that regard. Yeah, because uh, Jet Li is a very underrated eye actor. He's he's got good, a good he's got good subtle expressions and. He can, he can really convey that kind of sweet softness very well, and he's, he's done it in a lot of his films. Again, most notably in Unleashed, or, or aka Danny the Dog. And he he, 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 he peppers some of that in here, and he, and that, that kind of sweetness, you can see why a woman like Carcarla Giano's character would fall for him, because he has kind of got this kind of this sweet puppy dog quality about him, where he seems just very, very gentle, despite being such a talented martial artist. He's got this kind of, kind of gentle quality about him, you can see why a, a woman would respond to that so well. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I, I also like the fact that after the MRI fight, they essentially have a mistaken identity where for some reason they all just assume that Jet Li is the one that killed the security officer. I know that they see him run out of the room, but it's like they don't even try to get his side of events. They just assume that he just shot the guy, which makes no sense. But I get why they did it. It's, you know, from this point on, Jet Li is essentially having to fight his friends and the only one that believes him at least to enough of a degree to still be on his side is his wife and uh, he's now got to go up against Aldrich but what I absolutely love is the fight with his friends isn't like any of the other fights it actually is more like a Jackie Chan fight because mm -hmm. he's he's slowly but surely handcuffing everyone and tangling them up together and, and just throwing them around but he's not actually hitting them and I really, I almost feel like that was put in just as a sort of, yeah, we can do this sort of fight scene too. Like, it, you know, it's, it almost felt yeah. like a haha, -ha, you know? Yeah, because I mean, J Jet Li was never much of a prop fighter. I mean, that was always more Jackie's thing. You're right. And it felt like, it felt like them showing, hey, we can do, we, we can do what Jackie does. We can do that kind of thing. Because you got to remember at this time, Jackie Chan movies were very popular in America too. So some of that was probably an intentional homage because that because American audiences were responding to that stuff in Jackie Chan films. Those movies like Super Cop and First Strike and Rumble in the Bronx had come out in America and been moderate hits. So people were kind of looking at Kung Fu movies like that. That's kind of what they expected to see from Kung Fu movies at the, at the time was a kind of Jackie Chan-esque, you know, subduing a bad guy, not necessarily beating him down, but just kind of subduing them in kind of a almost humorous way. Yeah, exactly. And the fact that He's not fighting bad guys in that scene makes it work. Um, cause obviously we've, we've seen multiple Jet Lees by that point. And the fact that we're seeing the good one actually take the time to not hurt his friends, which we know full well, if he wanted to, he could, you know, send them through the wall. So the fact that he's being so restrained and he, he is also demonstrating that he has a much greater mastery over his new abilities than perhaps even he realizes. 
And it's it maybe when you first watch it, that scene won't stand out to you in that regards. But on a rewatch, it's like, ah, yeah, he's not just destroying everything in his path, which means he must be holding back because otherwise we know he can. Again, it's character through action. It's, it's conveying character through physical violence. Exactly, exactly. Skipping ahead just a little bit, because we already kind of covered the Jason Statham scenes in the, the, the scene where Rodeca dies, but one of the most tense moments of the whole film for me is uh, TK's next and sadly final scene in the in the film where they go back to her home and she's expecting Gabe to be there, but unfortunately Evil Jet Li, a.k.a. Eulor, has done that already. Uh, how he got there before Gabe, I don't really know, but he did. And she essentially, you know, he's like, I need a weapon, which is exactly what the other one was saying earlier. So again, there's no reason to doubt that that's the good version of Jet Li. But then she sees another Jet Li on the roof outside the room. And in that moment, you're like, oh, shit. <laughs> and I got to say, like, considering the conversation that is often had about whether or not female characters are able to look after themselves or whether they're just there to sort of serve the plot of a male character. The fact that she accurately manages to deduce which one is the fake, and the second she realizes that the one in the attic is the fake, the gun that she was about to hand him, she now draws on him, and there is no doubt in my mind that if it was anybody less skilled, she'd have put a bullet in his head. It's like, that was not a woman that you wanted to cross. Yeah, they, they definitely tried to give her uh, that moment of, of agency and bravery. And it's uh, and it's just, you know, again, because he is basically a supervillain, she had no chance. But but again, again, in a movie that's full of little character moments, because, again, it's so propulsive towards action, it's nice that they could show that she was competent. She was not just a, dam a, dam a damsel in distress. She does get fridged, to use the internet term, to, to motivate Jet Li in the end. But in that moment, she still shows that she has agency and she's a character of action, which is good because they very easily could have just had Evil Jet Li overpower her and show that she was weak and, and he could have tricked her. But they chose to have her be, have her be, you know, intelligent, clever, and perceptive, which is not always the case with kind of movies with female roles. So for that, it should be commended. Yeah, and I wouldn't necessarily say that it is fridging, given that you know her her character sort of exists multiple times and we see multiple different versions of her and like you say she's got a lot of agency in the film the character i actually feel sorry for is aldridge because obviously once she realizes that she can't uh kill jetly she calls for him and literally all he gets to do is open the door and he doesn't even get a shot off and he's dead and i was just like oh my god that's that's so disappointing <laughs> That's true. He does get taken out pretty quickly. But like you say, the death of uh, his wife it is, is one of his closest friends. And the fact that everybody thinks he did it as well just sends good Jet Li over the edge. And he's now decided that he's going to team up with Statham and he's going to kill bad Jet Li. I also like the uh, when the rest of the SWAT guys come in the room and obviously Eulor uh, jumps out of the window and shatters it, which is the great little stunt scene. But because they're they're not looking for a superhuman Jet Li. They're looking for just a regular person. They immediately assume that he must be in the garden. And of course, that's where good Jet Li is. So the fact that they immediately start taking pot shots at uh, the hero rather than the villain, 
again, it's not like amazingly clever, but it is like a little, a, a nice little clever moment that I did appreciate that. Yeah, of course, you're not going to look at the roof of the building over the road. You're going to look in the ground where a normal person would land. Yeah, and the, the script is smarter than, than 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 we give it credit for. I think. I mean, a, but uh, like I said, I think that I think that it's uh, we don't you don't think about it too much because again, the movie just moves so rapidly. But it's full of little things like that that hey, you're like hey, that is clever. That that is something that should be applauded because they could have easily been much more surface level than that. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, we get a lot of, a lot more backstory, a bit of, bit more bonding between Jet Li and Jason Statham, which is, is, is always funny to rewatch given how many films they have kind of done together over the years. You could almost plot their careers by, you know, which film are you talking about when you say that they've done a film together? But, um, I do like the scene in the gas station where, you know, you get that great sort of weapon moment where he breaks down his machine gun and then Jet Li just, smashes a lamppost and it shatters on the ground and he's like yeah that's my weapon and then of course we get rodecker's double come out and again a little a nice moment for statham's character to sort of basically say thanks for everything i know you don't understand this but i'm i'm gonna get him and i i really liked that because it would have been easy for statham's character to just not really have any involvement because it's so clearly jet lee's story but they still found a way to give him some small moments in what was to come yeah, and, and and let's be honest, it is silly to have to have Dora Lindo have to have Roy Dicker's character be the alternate version be the gas station and just happens to be there. But it goes back to it being campiness and and, and kind of a, that kind of new camp sincerity. And it works if you if you choose to go along with it. Like you can roll your eyes at it and go, Oh, that's ridiculous. And it is. But it's there it's there to inform character, it's there to give state them a, a moment of acting and, and character shading. So it goes back to the idea that can't be that silly is not necessarily bad if it's done sincerely, and, and sincerity is what makes camp work. Without sincerity, you have you have irony, and irony is almost always annoying and never endearing. And that's and sincerity is what makes the one an enjoyable film. It's what keeps it from being trash to being a, a true enjoyable campy film because it could, it could be something that's very eye-rolling and very irritating but because it's done so sincerely because it's, it's done with earnestness it works and you know i often talk about about how earnestness and sincerity makes films live or die and this is a movie that's very much entirely held up by kind of this goofy sincerity yeah a hundred percent and you know i i'm gonna disagree with the director on what he because apparently originally there was a really big long fight sequence between jason statham and jet lee that they wanted to shoot and i'll be honest i think the film works better with there not being one between the two of them aside from the fact that it makes absolutely no sense that he would be able to stand up to either of the jet lees it doesn't matter which one it was the the fact that when he tries to go after good jet lee good jet lee just almost kills him in one kick and then when we see him go after Bad Jet Li after the explosion, the way that he just gets taken apart. And, it, and again, it's almost as vicious as Rodecker's fight, but Evil Jet Li is being sadistic and smug and he's drawing it out and he doesn't want it to be over quickly. So he's letting him get away. He's letting him think that there's hope and get to his weapon. And... I don't think that would have worked if that had been like a, a Jason Statham versus Jet Li fight. 
like it, it the only way it works is with Statham's character so clearly outmatched that this is just an exercise in futility. Yeah, and I and again I think you have to illustrate it. You have to make the fight between the Jets mean something and ha- and having Statham be sidelined is a good way of doing that. Having having Rodecker be annihilated earlier in the film establishes that because again at this time in his career, Jason Statham was not Jason Statham that we think of him as. He was he was locked stuck in two smoking barrels, Jason Statham. He was snatched, Jason Statham. He wasn't yet action star, Jason Statham. He wasn't the guy who had worked with Corey Yoon and become a bigger action star. That, that happened because of this film, but no, he wasn't there yet. So, so having those characters be sidelined again takes it back to being the Jet versus Jet show, which is really the main event of why we're watching this movie. Because again, that's how they sold the movie. That's what we're there to see. And the movie does a really great job of building up to that point where that's really the only fight that matters. The only fight you really want to see is the two Jets go at each other. And that fight is well worth the wait because whilst perhaps diehard martial art fans might be disappointed that you're not looking at a Kung Fu spectacle in the same way as something that you might get in the 80s or the 70s, but what we do get is a fight between two beings that are well beyond the abilities of a normal person. And it actually got me thinking because we said earlier that this film definitely takes inspiration from The Matrix and this fight definitely reminds you of that if somehow you've forgotten during watching this. But the other thing that this fight reminds me of is Jet Li kind of had great training to do this sort of wire work mixed in with CGI uh, effects because he did a lot of Wuxia films. So he was already kind of used to doing these over-the-top characters that had fantastical powers. And it, it, it made me smile in retrospect how similar this final fight is maybe not in execution, but in design, to a lot of the fights that he had playing over-the-top martial art characters that can run through the air and have their own version of superpowers. And I just thought that was really interesting, watching him sort of ramp up from being able to fight like a normal human to both versions of Jet starting to use their powers. Evil Jet has you know, a lot more control over it because we're doing it longer, but good jet can still do it back. Like he's, he's learned enough in a short space of time to hold his own. And obviously it comes down to the moral lesson of whilst he was trying to do this in anger, he couldn't win. And that's its own little thing. But I just, I've, I found a lot of parallels between the old style Jet Li Wuxia films and this new, like American, as you said, new wave version. Yeah. And so much, and to me, it's really the melding of two plus. Because in America, you've always needed an explanation for why these things happen. They have to be like superpowered beings that are enhanced by the sci-fi element. Whereas in Hong Kong, they could just be really good martial artists, and through being good martial artists, they can walk on air. And yeah, here in America, that that doesn't fly. Americans don't buy that generally. They have to have some sort of plot explanation. And the movie does a really good job of slowly ramping up to that. So when they do kind of go go ham at the end, it makes sense. And while, again, it's, you're right, it's not the most intricate kung fu fight you'll ever see, but it is quite an accomplishment from a technology perspective. Not just the Matrixy stuff, but again, the face replacement stuff is really at its most in this final fight scene. And it's a wonderful melding of body doubles, facial replacements, and all kinds of practical effects to make it look like this man's fighting himself. And it, it holds up really, really well, even on a high-def print. If you're, if you're watching it in 1080p, you can maybe see a little bit of the seams there here and there, but for the most part, if you're just watching it casually, 
the effect 100% works and it keeps you entirely engaged while you're watching basically Jet, Jet Li fight Jet Li. And in a 23-year-old movie, that's really impressive. Yeah, and I, I will say as well, I don't find myself annoyed when the power stuff happens. If anything, it actually helps. And the way in which they... The sound design of when like Evil Jet Li does one of these big power moves or uses his abilities to cheat how physics work and like he can just dash across the screen very quickly to follow up one of his martial art flurries. I actually found myself really enjoying that as much as the martial arts stuff because it makes this fight sequence as a whole package so much more unique than any other version of actor fights himself. Because let's be honest, the idea of a martial arts star having himself be his on-screen double isn't new. Jackie Chan did it. Van Damme's done it about 10 times, I think. And almost all of the, 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 the big guys have had a film where they've played more than one role. But this is one of the only ones that I consistently found myself going back to in a way that a lot of those other guys, I don't. And some of that comes from the sci-fi element, but Jet Li does a really good job of portraying these characters. And even though you know that there's a double, I think there's a couple of different doubles, he is so good at mimicking and creating these two separate styles for obviously a double to do that even though you know you're looking at someone else, you're never entirely sure which one is the double in some scenes. And that's why it works. And you stop caring because... With the powers, the sound design, the effects, the the exploding power plant that they're having this fight in, it all just comes together and you just, the only thing that you're really focused on is the story beat, which is, you law, the evil Jet Li is winning, right up until the moment when good Jet Li gets back up and starts using his flowing style and remembers his grandfather's teachings, which is a great moment and, you know, for obvious reasons kind of got to me, uh, given that I watched this film with my grandfather. And the fact that he then starts effortlessly using his powers to enhance his own flowing style is very predictable. Don't get me wrong. It's nothing new, but I really like the way it's executed in this particular scene. Well, and again, tropes are not bad. Just because it's something new doesn't mean it's bad ever. Yeah. It's all, it's all, it's all about delivery. It's all, it's all about execution. And again, the sincerity does so much for making this work. It really does. And and it's such a again the final fight scene is such a, again again a good example of them displaying character through action, characters through physical violence, and uh, and you're right it is better than any of the times Van Damme did it three or four times. It's better than the time Jackie Chan did it. I mean, so because a lot of action stars have done this, but none of them did such a good job. And I say this I say this with no caveats, no exceptions. Nobody's done it better than Jet Li because he felt like two distinct characters. That's not true of Double Impact. That's not true of Jackie Chan's Twin Dragons. You know, yeah. I mean, it always feels gimmicky in those movies. And to me, the one's biggest accomplishment, really, its biggest triumph, is that the Jet Li versus Jet Li thing, to me, doesn't really feel like a gimmick. It doesn't feel gimmicky. You just kind of get wrapped up in this kind of earnestly goofy story. You care about what happens. Whereas in Double Impact or Twin Dragons or in his other films where actors play themselves in multiple roles or play twins of themselves you invariably just start trying to watch to, to spot the seams or oh yeah that's a body double that's a body double that's a guy in a mask you don't do that in this movie you just kind of just let it wash over you just accept that oh yeah it's two jet least just you kind of on some level just accept that that's what you're seeing because 
the the effects work is is good enough to to convey that. But mostly, it's Jet Li's performance because he really does sell the idea that it's two different characters. But it also helps, in my opinion, that they don't have what nearly all of those older films have, which is that scene where they're both in frame together and they're both like looking at each other, but in the same frame. And it's so obvious that there's just a split down the middle yeah. and then, you know, they're stitching together two different scenes. And the fact that they avoided doing that and decided to just cut more, basically, and to have it all done through acting, you could argue that, oh, well, you know, they're not actually on screen together that much. And it's like, well, no, they're not. But when they are, it's because of a reason. They're not just doing it to go, oh, look at this cool new thing we learned how to do with the camera, which is what like Twin Dragons and Double Impact definitely feels like at points. The fact that the final fight is still a good final fight in spite of the fact that it's Jet Li versus Jet Li says everything. And, you know, they have, uh, they have this big slow motion type fight where sparks fly everywhere and to demonstrate how fast they're moving, the sparks are moving in slow motion. That's the only bit that didn't quite age as well. And I think the HD isn't doing it any favors because you can see the aliasing on the two jets. But again, I can't hold that against the film. You know, that wasn't the original uh, situation that they were going to be making this film for. Those weren't the circumstances. But it still works for me because you're all in on a narrative level and then it finishes it off nicely by good Jet Li gets a weapon, swings the axe down on evil Jet Li's head and doesn't kill him. He stops. And it's like, he is good Jet Li, so therefore he cannot kill evil Jet Li. He's going to... Chuck him over to Jason Statham so that he can go and serve his time in the in his prison sentence and in in, in the in the in the Hades universe. You can't forget that it's called Hades. Yes, this is not a subtle film. No, and uh, you 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 do get that moment where both Jet Li's get taken through the wormhole by accident, and uh, this this actually made me chuckle because basically evil Jet Li tells them that the other Jet Li is the evil one. And they just believe him, which in and of itself makes me yeah. laugh. Like, these guys aren't that smart. So they put Good Jet Li in the chair. And then Jason Statham sees that um, Good Jet Li's wedding ring finger still has the imprint of his band. So he's like, no, no, it's the other one. Don't don't make a mistake. Now, that, that in and of itself is clever. But then when they go in over to the evil Jet Li, the first thing they do is take off his sci-fi watch that quite clearly didn't come from that reality. So you think, that watch wasn't exactly subtle, guys. That made it freaking obvious which one is the evil Jet Li. <laughs> that, that's not, that, that, you're right, that, that, is, that is very much a plot problem. And that's not my biggest pro- plot problem with the end of this movie. And it, and I, I'll forgive this plot thing because it, it sets up one of the greatest endings of all time of, of an action oh, yes. film. But my, my biggest problem with this film, and I do have one glaring problem with it, they make a big deal out about how there can't just be one character because if if if, if there ends up being one character, if a character eliminates all his doppelgangers, it may cause the end of reality as we know it. They make a very big point of this that if there's only one, it could it could unmake reality. Like they even talk about they're going to send Good Jet Li back to his home home reality to be put in prison to be falsely in prison because it will keep him safe. So if they're, if they're, they're, that way he won't ever die and there'll be balance in in in, in the multiverse. Because if there's not, the world may cease to exist. But yet, then they sent Evil Jet Li to Hell World, where he must fight off mobs of criminals who want to kill him. 
So how is that keeping Evil Jet Li safe? What if one of those what if one of those space criminals, what if one of those Hades prison colony criminals shanks Evil Jet Li? Does the world cease to exist then? Why are they putting Evil Jet Li at risk of dying if 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 one of them dying could cause the, the end of reality? To me, that's the biggest plot glaring thing about the entire film there. But it's okay because it, you know, in the end, it leads to that great scene at the end, which is really the scene everyone really remembers from this film. It's really the scene that kind of has kept this movie in the consciousness of action film film fans for 20 years. But still, that little story setup kind of bothers me because, again, they make a big deal about it. If there's only one, reality may be destroyed, but then why are they sending this one to a very dangerous place? It always bugs me a little bit. Do you know what? I actually agreed with you, and then as you were saying it, a thought occurred to me, which is that these people are quite clearly idiots. Um, <laughs> no, 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 because in the hospital scene, one one thing we didn't mention, because I was about to say it's not that important, but actually now I'm wondering if it is, when Jet Li has to fight his friends because they think that he's gone mad or whatever, Rodek and Statham's character, who's got such a silly name I'm not even going to try and pronounce, because I thought it was Punch, but uh, when I looked in the credits, it's not, and I'm not even going to attempt it. But basically, they see what he's capable of, and Rodecker makes a point of saying, he's close to Eulor's level of strength. Damn, he's got his speed, too. And it's almost like in that moment, they realize that Eulor isn't the only one that's been getting the power upgrade. I genuinely wonder if they don't actually realize that the energy is being given to everyone, and they think that somehow it's just going to you, Law, which is why they don't think it's an issue if he dies because he's the problem. It, it's not actually occurred to them that the other Jet Li would then be the one. Yeah, I guess I guess they are just idiots. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, uh, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that that's intentional, but it feels like they they genuinely didn't realize that he would that that the other Jet Li was that strong until they saw it for themselves. But like you said, it, is that not obvious? Does that not follow all the rules that you've laid out for us? So I, I do feel like there's an element of that multiverse police force is stupid because so many of the film, so much of the film wouldn't happen if they had any kind of levels of intelligence, you know? Yeah, like why wouldn't you just keep, well, why wouldn't you just keep, uh, U-Law in like his little Hannibal Lecter prison cell for all eternity? Once you get him in there, why send him to like Hades world or whatever? Just leave him in exactly. his little metal box, you know? There he's safe. There, he's not going to kill good Jet Li. You know, just leave him there, you know? Yeah, exactly. then we wouldn't have a movie. You know? No, then yeah, I know, I, I know. But yeah, and like you say, it, it, it leads to two, two more sequences. One, you know, is the very end, and one is more memorable, which is obviously Eulor ends up on the penal colony. And he, uh, I, I swear that's the most savage Jet Li is throughout the entire film, just beating up all these poor stunt guys, like, just just blitzing them but it's such a good scene and obviously there's the line i'm not gonna say but uh, it's it's definitely the line that everybody remembers from this film well uh, well i'll go and say it he goes he goes he goes i i am you law i am nobody's bitch you are mine and uh i gotta tell you again i saw this opening night the night it came out and it had a packed theater i was with a bunch of my friends at that scene to explain how 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 amazing that scene is at that at that moment when he says i am nobody's bitch the theater exploded in laughter and applause. Like, not even, like, irony <laughs> laughter. Like, people were, like, fist pumping. Like, yeah. 
Because that's because at that moment, again, Jet Li and Jackie Chan were very popular at that time, and to see, and Jet Li had never really been a character like that before. So it, people lost their shit in a good way at hearing him say, "I am nobody's bitch." Yeah, and it, I, just one of one of one of my happiest like movie going memories is just the explosion of joy that kind of wafted off that theater in that moment. Yeah, I mean, I don't doubt it. Like you say. It's so hard to convey to people how popular Jet Li was, especially in those early 2000s. And it's a shame that I couldn't have seen this in the cinema, but I I remember laughing at that line when I watched it. And I always sort of wondered as a kid, like, would there be a sequel? Because especially when we have films like Undisputed, which take place literally in prisons, I almost feel like there's a film where they could have reworked you law into the main character and had like a prison film set on you know hades that 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 could have been really cool yeah i mean it seems like to me because we live in such a we live in such a franchise world nowadays in 2023 even as a, even back then i kept thinking it'd be so obvious to do another sequel and call it the two and yeah. it, it would be and you saw you you would somehow get jet lee's good character involved in in the prison world are you somehow like like or like you law would escape but you would simply be so obvious to have one called the two because now there's just two of them and like like did they team up are they still fighting or do they have a common enemy now do they find out there's a 30 do they find out there's still a, a Jet Li out there and the multiverse is even worse than them they have to team up to fight them so anything like that or maybe, or maybe there's multiple Jason Statham you could do so much with this silly concept but it's like, it's just like the, it was so obvious to have one called the two, and I can't believe they never did that. It felt like it's like such a lost opportunity for a good sequel name. Yeah, like you say, there is so much they could have done with that. I mean, they they could have brought in anybody, and it, you wouldn't have even needed uh, to give a reason why Yulaw would want to suddenly become a quote unquote good guy again. Because there's no way he'd let somebody else become the one before him. Like that's his whole thing is he wants to be the one. So if somebody else was suddenly basically like copycatting him. Because uh, they've they've realized that this could work. I mean that that could have that could have been interesting. So so many yeah. twists, but and it could have been another big action story. It could have been it could have been somebody like a Stallone. It could have been an Arnold. It could have been a Donnie Yen. It could have been someone like that. And you could have had them having to team up to stop this guy who's actually getting who's actually going to accomplish it this time. And they they did a thing where it could have been a thing where it's just just takes the character has to go and get you law from the prison world. It's like. We need your help. We need your help to know how this criminal thinks. We need you to help us stop him. So then you have the three of them going after this other super criminal. So, you know, so anything like that could work. But again, it doesn't really matter because all action movies are tropes. All action movies are stories of formula and genre. But it would be nice to have more of again the kind of smug, evil Jet Li because that's to me again one of the joys of this movie is watching Jet Li really just relish being a bad guy. Because he's clearly having fun doing it. He's clearly having fun being a bad guy. And like I said, I love every time Jet Li has played a villain, or at least has portrayed a villain for the majority of the film. I've I always enjoy him as a bad guy. He's he's effortlessly intimidating, and even when he was a good guy, they always tried to keep that sort of straight edge or that stoicism, even in some of his American films. But when he was allowed to just go full villain, I it was always great. Like I, I wish he'd done it more. He always reminded me of it, it was the same way for Wesley Snipes, where the two of them you never knew if their character was gonna be hero or villain because they played both, and that's what made films where you weren't sure work so well because you couldn't just go, 
oh, he's a Harrison Ford, so of course he's going to be a hero, or oh, he's um, blanking on any other character name now, but someone that routinely plays villains. You know what I mean? It's like when you've yeah. got someone that's known for playing both, it makes their ambiguity part of the appeal in a story where you don't actually know where their loyalties lie. And you know, you bring up a good name, like like Wesley Snipes would have been a great villain for the third first sit for, for for a an idea of a sequel. He could have been the guy who they have to team up to fight because that would work really well. Because he's got that same kind of you said that kind of ambiguous good guy bad guy quality to him. That's pretty rare among action stars. So yeah, yeah. I think that's a good call on someone like saying Wesley Snipes. But yeah, again, I think this, to go back to the one and go back to the, what the movie is and not what we would like a hypothetical sequel to be. <laughs> the one is a really underrated film. It's it's like, like a lot of Jet Li's films in general. It's kind of been forgotten, and I and I don't say that lightly because you're just not talked about amongst regular people much anymore. Like you, everyone talks about like you know the Man films and like the Raid and the Raid Two and all the and the Night Comes for Us and all these kind of Indonesian or or you know later day Hong Kong movies, but. People don't kind of sleep on these American uh, endeavors by these old Hong Kong stars, and and they're good. And the one is unfairly kind of slept on even more than say Unleashed or Kiss of the Dragon or those films because it's got such a goofy premise. Again, the Jet versus Jet thing is a goofy idea, and people kind of dismiss it. So, for any of those who've listened to this entire episode and kind of not maybe you haven't seen the one, maybe you're on the fence about seeing the one, I highly recommend tracking it down because it is one of Jet Li's better English language films, and it's unfairly maligned by a lot of people. Like it's, it doesn't have a lot of fans, but the ones who do like it, like me and Scott, really like it and think it's got a lot of merit. And if you're a Jet Li fan, I can't imagine you haven't seen the one. But if you haven't, it's one of the shining examples of what Jet Li could do as a performer. And it's and it's kind of strange that of all the Hong Kong films Jet Li made, that one of the ones that best showcased him was not a Hong Kong film, but an American film where he was kind of out of his element in a sci-fi picture. But in that new setting, in that new environment, he really did soar and show everything he could do as a both, an, both a physical and emotive performer. I think, uh, I think part of the problem in terms of why a lot of Jet Li's American stuff isn't as well remembered, or at least something like The One, and I've, and I've literally just had this thought while you were talking, is Jackie Chan's stuff tends to be better remembered but that's because he made a lot of films in the 90s and the nostalgia wave hasn't hit the 2000s yet 2000s is considered old by today's kids but it's not considered old enough to be retro and the 90s has now recently become the point where everybody's taking reboots from everybody's deciding that the stuff that was made in the 90s was actually good like the 90s is currently slowly but surely eating the 80s as the decade where people are realizing oh there was a lot of good franchises that we could probably take from that and uh, turn into into films again i don't think the love for the 80s will ever truly go away i think that decade is 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 too strongly attached to too many people of a certain age group but i feel like the 90s has definitely started to see that same level of uh, parasitic revival because they just desperately are looking for stuff that can hopefully be successful again. And the 2000s is almost like a no-go zone. Like it's, it's too recent for people to, to take from, but it's too old for people to be like, Oh yeah, that stuff was cool. You know, it's like, uh, the one, like you said, it, it gets memed a lot. Well, when the one was made, memes weren't a thing. 
the internet and social media wasn't really a thing. And the fact that to some people that in and of itself is enough of a reason to not watch it. It's not part of the classics. It's not old enough to have that sort of a respect. But for me and you that actually lived through that decade, it is a perfect time capsule of that time. And that's what makes it work alongside good acting performances, good fight choreography. Again, this is done by Corey Yoon. You're not going to be watching some American guy that didn't know what to do with Jet Li. Like, this is Jet and Corey. There's there's nothing bad about this. There is no negative reason to not watch this. The effects have aged really, really well. The only thing that could possibly put you off is if this is something you've never seen before. And if you've never experienced films from this era, then this is going to be a bit of a culture shock to you. But don't fight it. Just embrace it. If you want to laugh at it, laugh at it. If you want, you'll have a good time. You know what I mean? Yeah, I've often t- taken the stance as if if you if you watch a movie and you, well, you engage with it sincerely, you may laugh at the awkwardness of it and all of that initially. But if you truly give yourself over to watch the movie, that laughter will give way to just sincere appreciation over time. Like like the laughter will go from laughing at the movie to slowly laughing with the movie because the movie is self aware again. Again, I can't say this enough. It is new camp. N U dash camp. <laughs> it is very much. It is very much camp of the two thousands. And if you give yourself, if you realize that, that it know it knows what it is. It knows entirely what it is. But it's not. It's not. It's not winking at you ironically. But it's asking you to buy in and go along on the ride with it. And if you're willing to go along on the ride with the one, you'll have a good time. So what, one final thing then before we kind of wrap up. What did you think about the ending for Gabe? Because essentially Jason Statham tricks the police department and doesn't send him back to get in prison for life. He sends him somewhere else. Now, when I watched this originally, when I was much younger, I actually thought he sent him back in time. But rewatching it, uh, I've realized that that's not what he actually did. Uh, he sent him to yet another reality mm-hmm. because that's why the cars are weird. And obviously the signs being weird don't mean anything to me because I don't live in America. All I know that's what the signs were supposed to look like. And now, obviously, I get it. But uh, back then, I didn't I didn't pick up on all of the like ridiculousness. So I find it really interesting that they sent him to a parallel reality where basically he was able to live out the same thing that he did that originally landed him Carla's character, TK, and that she's got the exact same job in this reality that she she does in his. So I, th- I thought that's kind of an interesting way to end for his character, you know? Yeah, and and there are some dark implications of that. Like, like you know, he's basically going into this world to basically, with all this prior knowledge of this person that he. But if you look at it the way I look at, it, I try I try just to take it again a sincere a sincere read on it because that's what it's intended as. It's meant to be a happy ending because the world he's into is clearly meant to be happy. Like you know, it's very bright, it's very colorful. The signs talk about how Los Angeles is one of the cleanest cities in America, which is again, you don't you're not you're not from America, so you don't get how kind of silly that is. But the fact that everything's so bright, sunny, clean is meant to be kind of shocking. But it's but it's it's also meant to be like this, this idyllic world. So it's kind of the perfect reality. And you can look at it as kind of dark, where you know he's he's going to kind of step into this other Jet Li's life. But but when I watched it again recently to prep for this episode, I realized that in this happy world, in the, in this like bright, sunshiny world, the other Jet Li, the Jet Li that was there, had been killed already. Clearly, earlier before he met this version of his wife, before he he found the version of his dog, so that 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 jet was already gone. So this this the soul 
uh, Carla Giano's character in this world had been kind of lost. She was never going to have her soulmate. She was never going to have that person because that person for her in this world had been killed by this villain. So in a way, it was a happy ending for her too because now she gets to live out the life she was always meant to have with this other person who's basically as much a stand-in for her for who she lost without knowing it as the person that, that Jelly's character lost. So they're both getting basically rematched because they both lost their other halves. Now, Jetley's character was aware of it, she was not, but they both still went through loss. So, I think it's happy. I think that if you want to read it as darker than it than, than intended, you can. But I think it's intended, again, as everything else in the movie, to meant to be read with a little bit of sincerity and earnestness, and just meant to be like, no matter what, love finds a way kind of thing, you know? Like, the, yeah. no, no matter where they are, they will find each other, they will love each other, you know? I mean, I'll be honest, that was the only way I ever read it. I, n- I never read it in a darker way. But then I think that comes down to the fact that, like you said, I've I've always been on, I've always been much more sincere with films and taking them at their word. It's like, yeah, you can put that mm, cynical spin on it, I suppose, or that more modern spin on it that, uh, and I, you know, I'll, I'll leave that there. But it's definitely meant to be the happy ending for the two of them. Like they get a second chance essentially, which is not something that most people get when those things end. Yeah. And, I, and, and I never really thought that myself either until I, again, I've been on social media. I've been on the internet for many, many years and you read other people's reactions, to these films, and I've read some negative readings of that ending. And that comes from modern day, again, modern day cynicism. Because people so often look at the read read media through their own kind of cynical, you know, late twentieth century prism, and so much of this, so much of this early media that we that we watch and consume was not done with cynicism. So much of the things that you and I talk, especially the things that you and I've talked about on the show, were not constructed with cynicism in mind. They're they're constructed with with optimism and sincerity, and people have trouble in our in our modern day landscape reading media that's sincere because they don't know how to read media that's sincere because of all the years of of you know detachment and irony they've been fed through marvel movies through tv through streaming shows and just kind of constant barrage of like meme culture in the internet so it makes reading movies like the one hard for people who are younger than us who didn't who didn't see those movies when they were new because they didn't have that because now they see everything through a sheen of detached irony. And and we came to that later in life, so we don't necessarily fall into that as easily. If that makes sense. I feel like I've kind of rambled a bit there, but I think you get what I'm saying. Yeah, no, I I, I get it. I, I I don't think it necessarily applies to just people that are younger than us. I definitely think this is something that affects people my age and, and older. Because uh, we are a few years apart from each other, not drastically, but th- enough to be a difference. And it's one of those things where I think at the end of the day, some people some people look for problems so that they can make a big deal about it. And some people just want to enjoy their themselves. And I, I feel like how you come into this movie is going to drastically affect how you read certain scenes. And that's true of every movie. And I feel like if you're just going to look for problems, you're going to find them. In in a perfect five-star movie, you'll still find problems because filmmaking mm-hmm. is not a perfect process. And if, you, if you're wondering why you can't find that perfect movie, it's because you're looking for the flaws. Instead of looking for the flaws, 
just enjoy the movie and engage with it at its level. If you're watching a small budget movie, you've got to understand that. And if you're watching a massive blockbuster, then you're probably not going to find intrigue and commentary on society in it. You might, but I doubt it. And if you're watching an, an arty independent film that is being shown in your local cinema, then you're probably going to get that. But you're probably not going to get massive special effects and flair and XXX. My point is, is that every film is trying to do one thing usually very well. Sometimes they succeed, sometimes they fail, but you're not going to get your specific taste in every single film. And with that said, I think we're going to end it there. <laughs> well, I, I, I just want to add one thing to that. And sorry, it's a brief thing. You're right. It's all about what you carry into the film with you. And if you, if you go into any, any movie looking to, to, to find a new favorite film, to going in with positivity and hoping that it'll be something you'll enjoy, you'll still see a movie with flaws. But if you go in, with, it's going to sound dopey, but if you go in with love and enthusiasm in your heart, you may fall in love with that movie and you'll find the flaws that you see in the film can be things that you love about it too, because a lot of things that we love in life are flawed, but we end up loving the flaws just as much because everything that's weird or, or bad about this movie, I still like as much as I like the things that are good about it because that's all in how you approach it. And uh, I think that, 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 that way of reading films going into it with, with an earnest positivity leads to better enjoyment. And if you're going to watch the one, and I really do think you should, if you haven't seen it, and if you haven't seen it in a while, which I guarantee you probably haven't seen it in a while, Go back and watch it again because it's aged really well outside outside of like like I said the, the the needle drops which again make it very much a time capsule of where it's from but from a technological perspective it's aged very well so if you haven't seen it in a while go back and rewatch it I think you'll find a very fun very enjoyable fast movie that doesn't take a lot of time knows what it is it really wants nothing more than just to entertain you and that's what we should want at a lot a lot of our action films we should, we should just want entertainment. A little bit of escapism, and occasionally to watch Jet Li be cool. And not only is Jet Li cool in this movie, he's cool times too. And what more could you want from that? Exactly. And with that said, I, I agree with Matt. I mean, I'd like to think if you haven't seen the one ever, you you see it before listening to us talk about it. But I know some people aren't like that. So if you haven't seen it, definitely go watch it or rewatch it. I, I'm a hundred percent in agreement with Matt on that. I'm going to thank Matt once again. And uh, where can people find you if they want to, you know, come and seek you out and stalk you online? Uh, well, I'm a lot of places because, as you know, t the Twitterverse is our own personal Hades colony now at this point in 2023. Uh, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I am on Twitter. I am on Blue Sky. I am on Hive. I am on Instagram. I am all those places as wheels critic. That's like wheels on a car, plural. Followed by critic, like I'm a film critic, Will's critic. My name is Matthew. It's M A T T H E W E S S A R Y S R E is my last name. Come find me. I'm on Letterbox. I'm on all those things. Come find me. We'll talk about movies. We'll talk. We'll talk about cartoons. We'll talk about video games. Um, come check out my writing. I write for Polygon. I write for I write for Synapse.co. I write for uh, Film Combat Syndicate. Come read my writing. Just come find me again, Will's critic on all social medias. I, I, I'm a film journalist. I, I interview creatives. I review movies. I'm a film Ronin, and my sword is my shitty movie opinions. Come find me, and let's have a duel. And on that bombshell, I shall hand you over to the me of the future, who will tell you what's coming next. All right, ladies and gentlemen, there you go. Once again, thank you to Matt for coming on the show and being an absolute blast. It is always a pleasure to have Mr. Essery on the show. And as I said in the intro... 
Next week, we're going to have a brand new guest to talk about a new police story, and it will make sense, sort of, why I have done this. But you'll have to wait until then to find out what that is. But until then, guys, stay safe, look after yourselves, and I will see you in the next one, and then it's time for Ninja Movies. On the action at its podcast!